Well, turn with me, please, this morning to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 in our New Testament scriptures. And we will look today at verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Grateful to be gathering with you this morning. We'll do some traveling next week. Some folks are already traveling this weekend, so be in prayer for us as we continue to pray for you. And we'll look forward to seeing you again on Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, let's hear God's word beginning at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father in heaven, we have heard your word read. Bless now that it will be proclaimed rightly and well for your glory. Show us how we can obey and respond. May Jesus Christ be central. His gospel be central. May you receive all the glory. And may we be transformed by your word and spirit to be and live as your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. This passage is the knockout punch. Paul is a skilled boxer, and he has backed his opponents into a corner. He has delivered one body blow after another in the opening chapters of Romans. And now, with both Jews and Gentiles on the ropes, Paul is ready to deliver the final blow that will finish his opening argument. And that argument is that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike are guilty of breaking God's law and subject to God's righteous wrath against their sin. Paul has been building that argument carefully in these first few chapters. And and however the opponent may try to evade and dodge, Paul is there waiting. Ignorance is no excuse. Moral superiority provides no protection. Even belonging to the covenant people of God visibly, that in and of itself will not shield one from God's wrath on the day of judgment. 
And you get the impression that the moral high ground for the non-Christian, for the unbeliever, it's like the high ground in the day of Noah's flood. It's shrinking. Uh, Any place one might try to hide from God's wrath is disappearing. So how then do we escape God's wrath? How do we find safety? Where is the refuge that we can go to to protect ourselves from God's wrath? Well, Paul will tell us right here, even in highlighting the problem of our sin. This passage is like the one we looked at two weeks ago, where Paul's going to focus on the problem. But in naming the problem, it inevitably points to a solution. It's almost as if there's so much focus on the problem that the solution becomes present by its absence. You're like, oh, there's got to be a solution here, and it can only be one solution. So the problem is the guilt of our sin, and the solution is the gift of God's Son. So let's walk through this passage together. It will show us that we can only hide from God's wrath in Jesus Christ. And the passage will give us four reasons why. Here's the first. Because of the power of sin. Paul begins in verse 9 with this question. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? What's the answer? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Now, it's common when outlining Romans, Bible studies on Romans, usually see chapter 3, verse 20 as the end of the first major section in Romans. And you can see why, because of Paul's question here in verse 9. In light of all that has been said so far, what can we conclude? Paul's ready to make his first big conclusion of the letter. And Paul, in writing this letter, it's a beautiful combination of doctrinal truths and masterful storytelling. So Romans isn't a story or a narrative like, say, Matthew or 1 Kings. But as Paul lays out various truths, there's not only systematic arrangement. And again, there's a reason Romans is so often used for Bible studies and and teaching people the Christian faith. The systematic arrangement is so good. But even within the arrangement, it's set within a narrative flow. There's a background story that, that holds everything together in Romans. So the book began with this declaration that the gospel story centers on Jesus He was humble during his earthly life, but he is now declared son of God in power by his resurrection. And as the king, as the Lord of the world, he's taking the nations captive. He's calling them to obey the faith. And even the Romans have come to share in that identity of the people of God. But along with the revelation of God's righteousness in Christ, there is also a revelation of God's wrath. Those are all bound up with his righteousness and with his character as God. It's part of the gospel story. And so Paul has labored to establish the idea of God's wrath here in the opening three chapters. 
The fact that God has revealed righteousness implies that we are unrighteous. And that's true whether we're Gentiles just living according to our conscience, you know, no, no revealed religion, just, just figuring things out on our own, or Jews who possess God's law. If we are not able to satisfy his commands, then we are breakers of God's law. That's the principle that levels the playing field. You can be ignorant or you can know what's right from wrong. But unless you keep God's law, then nothing will protect you from his wrath. Not circumcision, not the law, not ignorance, nothing. And so that's the conclusion Paul reaches here in chapter 3, verse 9. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And Paul had just asked, by the way, in verse 1, did you notice this? What advantage then is there in being a Jew? And he answered in verse 2, well, much in every way. But this time when he asked the question, what advantage is there? He says, not at all. Well, why the difference? Especially so close here uh, in the Bible. Because in verse 1, Paul is zooming in and saying, now look, historically, Jews have this advantage. They're the people God worked through. To accomplish his historical purposes. God made them promises. God gave them his law. And he's not going to retract any of that. But now when Paul zooms back out. And deals with the general truth. Okay. When it comes to God's judgment. When it comes to each person standing before God. And giving an account of their life. And being judged according to what they have done. Nobody has an advantage. When it comes to that situation, we are all under the power of sin. And notice especially that Paul uses the word power. We often talk about the guilt of sin, and Paul will too, verse 19. But he also uses the word power. He depicts sin as enslavement to a cruel master. Someone who exercises authority and control over people. And that just points to how deceptive sin is. You see, we think, oh, that sin, that will make me free. That will make me happy. If I give into that, I'll feel better. That's what sin promises you. But what it really does is it takes you captive. It offers you bait and then it enslaves you and it kills you. And it grips you further in its power. People commit sins because they are enslaved to sin. And that's why I said what I did about Paul being a masterful storyteller. What Bible story comes to mind when you hear the language of slavery? Probably Israel's slavery in Egypt. Well, Paul's weaving that story into the background. Sin is like Pharaoh, the cruel taskmaster that will not let God's people go, but God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the ultimate Passover, through the ultimate exodus, brings his people out of slavery. And he brings them through the waters eventually to the promised land. First he brings them to Sinai. In the Old Testament, he gave his good commands. And he also gives us in Christ now the Holy Spirit power to keep God's commands and then leads us on to our promised land 
when God renews this creation, the whole earth, when Jesus comes again. And that's why we can only hide from God's wrath in Jesus, because of the power of sin. And yet, thank God, we have somewhere to go to hide. So let's look at the next reason. Not only because of the power of sin, but because of the depth of sin. Beginning with verse 10 and going all the way to verse 18, Paul cites several Old Testament scriptures to prove his point that all people are under the power of sin. And this is if you've studied Romans before or memorized scripture, maybe used a Romans road approach to explaining the gospel to others. This is a section you're probably familiar with, the claim that there is none righteous and the proof of that claim from these Old Testament scriptures. It, it fits exactly what Paul has been doing in this letter. He's making the claim, hey, the gospel fulfills the Old Testament. God's judgment is impartial. That's his character. It's only fitting then that, that Paul takes those very words of that God and uses them to prove, support, his opening point. And in citing these scriptures, Paul paints a very graphic, dark picture of the heinousness of sin. I mean, it's easy just to read through these and say, okay, there, there's the Old Testament proof, but, but let's look at these for a minute. Let's look at the picture. Look at the language Paul employs. First, we have this general heading of verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. So that's the summary. That's the main point. None righteous. No human being can do enough to earn a righteous standing with God. Well, why not? Well, notice verses 11 through 12. Notice all these, there is no statements. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one on their own, no one according to their nature seeks God or lives by faith or measures up to his word. No one lives a life that reflects the glory of God in and of ourselves. And because of that, we are all guilty of sin. And I just want to be crystal clear on what Paul is trying to do here. He's saying, humanity, this is your bent. This is who you are by nature. And some of you, maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you've heard the gospel from day one. You may say, okay, well, man, I, I haven't always felt that bent. I, I want to please God. I want to do the things that, that God commands. I would point to that as the evidence of grace. That it is because you've been shaped from an early age by the word of God and by the spirit of God. And the effect of the grace of God in your life is that perhaps those powers have not dominated. So it's common when we baptize a, a baby or when we see a young child in church, we pray this. I pray they'll never know a day when they don't know God's grace. And many children growing up in the church say, I, I just, I don't remember when I didn't believe in Jesus. And sometimes that makes people nervous. So oh, you, you just assuming you're a Christian, you're just going through the motion. No, it's their way of saying, I was taught from day one to believe in him, and that's what I believe. I trust in him, I rest in him, 
and I love him. And so we see that as evidence of God's grace, the power of the word. The way you can best appropriate this passage is to still recognize that potential is there. That bent is still there, even if God's grace has been there from day one. And so if God has rescued you from that, again, that is the evidence of his grace. If you are saved, God has broken this power in your life. And yet, this is what temptation appeals to. This is where temptation tries to go. So thank God for his grace. But don't let anyone in this room assume, hey, I'm safe from that. That wickedness is there as a temptation. And we need God's grace to keep us from it. So let's keep going. Let's look at the vivid imagery of verses 13 and 14. And notice these are all sins of speech. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. I mean, just watch what comes out of your mouth when you give in to anger or pride or lust or despair. There is something wrong with us on the inside. And it frequently comes out of our mouths. And if you're more controlled, you still know what you've been tempted to feel uh, on the inside. And, and friends, I, I've seen this amongst very young children in heated moments, spew forth sin. I have been around older folks that spewed forth sin. You don't age out of temptation. I volunteered one time at the Special Olympics and saw those folks, some of them, spew forth sin. It's inside of everybody as a very powerful force. Verses 15 to 17 then turn to sins of violence. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. Inner corruption with deadly effects. Cursing and bitterness leading to violence and misery. We're no better off on our own than the generation that perished in the flood. When God looked and saw the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, Genesis tells us. And verse 18 then provides the summary. And this is the root sin that gives rise to all the others. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Just It's a practical atheism. Living as if there was no God who will ever call people to account. That is the bent of human nature. It's a corrupting power. It goes all the way down to our very core. It results from our failure to know God. Think Romans 1 that we looked at a few weeks ago. And I think people in our day are are, are probably tempted to deny this reality. I was talking with a person one time, and he, he was talking about addictions. He was a doctor. He was talking about addictions and why people do things that they do. And I, I just mentioned in a, in a conversational way, you know, hey, sin is there. That's a power. And he stopped. He goes, oh, sin. Yeah, maybe we should think about that. Maybe that's a possibility. I mean, this, this is something people are tempted to deny. The problem isn't sin. Uh, it's some kind of other problem. And and why should we say it's sin? I mean, why why listen to these religious texts? Uh, from long ago, I think if you just look out 
and see the violence and the corruption in our world, it's hard to deny these statements, isn't it? And when you see such things in yourselves, it's hard to deny these statements. If we see it in others, then we should be willing to see it in ourselves. But I would also make this argument. It's very unwise to deny the reality of evil. Why? Because if there's no disease, then you don't need a cure. But if you don't think there's evil in here or out there, well, then there's no evil people in the world. There's no evil people that we need to defend against. There's no evil people we need to unite against. There's no rights and liberties we need to protect. Or there's no real problem when bad things happen if there's no such thing as evil. But does anybody want to live in a world that thinks like that? No. So there's a foolishness in denying the reality of evil. That would actually lead to more evil. So be assured it is out there. Be assured it is in here. And the best way to protect against the evil out there is to acknowledge the evil in here and therefore to seek God and his son. Acknowledge your need of a savior and find safety from God's wrath in Jesus Christ. So we need it because of the power and depth of sin. And now let's come to the third idea. We need safety in Jesus because of the guilt of sin. Paul cites these texts and now he reaches this conclusion or or draws out this implication in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Let's just follow Paul's train of thought here. First, he talks about whatever the law says. Just referring back to what he just said. Here, the Old Testament. Whatever the Old Testament says, whatever the Old Testament says about sin, he says it says it to those who are under the law. And here, law probably refers to the Mosaic Covenant. So the Old Testament says these things to the people under the Mosaic Covenant. So this is what the Old Testament says to the Jewish people. The Old Testament condemns even Israel for violating God's commands. And if you were to go back and look up all these references that Paul cites here, here's what you'll find. Many of them, if not all, All of those Old Testament verses address the unrighteous within Israel. These aren't texts where the author looks to the Gentiles and says, God, rescue us. Many of these passages speak to the unrighteous within Israel. So not even the Jews are exempt from the condemnation of sin as their own scriptures testify. But here's Paul's logic. If the Jews are guilty, how much more than the Gentiles who don't even have God's written law? And that's what he says in the second half of the verse. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. If Israel is guilty, then so is everyone else. It's like how Adam represented humans in the garden. Well, Israel 
reflects the state of humanity in the world. So you get an idea of why God does what he does with Israel in the Old Testament. It's not just, hey, let's get this nation and get and give them this land. It's let's get this nation and let's work through them for the good of the world. But we also use them to show the world why they need the gospel. Because we're guilty in Israel. And there is a guilty Israel in us. They are a picture of the whole world and of our inability to keep God's commands and our need of God's salvation so that every mouth is silenced. The whole world is held accountable to God. And notice that courtroom imagery there to to shut the mouth. That's when the defendant, they have no more to say in response to the charges. And so they, they put their hand over their mouth. And one author writes, if an obviously guilty defendant continues to speak, the court might, of course, order that his mouth be stopped for him. He can't defend himself. He's now accountable, as Paul says, which means liable to prosecution. So there we are, all humans, no matter our background, standing guilty before God. Paul has backed us into a corner. There is nowhere left to hide. So how do we escape the wrath of God? That's the fourth idea. Why do we need Jesus? Because of the solution for sin. I want you to notice verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Now, this may not look like much of a solution, but but follow me here. One last time, Paul names the problem. The law doesn't lead to salvation. The law only shows us our sin. And Paul will say more about that later in Romans 7. He'll say, hey, nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy, the the law is righteous, the law is good, but sin is a parasite. It just latches on to everything. It's a virus, and it hijacks every good gift of God and enslaves God's gifts, recruits God's gifts to its evil purposes. So we can't be justified by keeping the law because of the power of sin. We're all under sin's power. And so the law cannot set us free. And if that's where the story ended, God would be just. I mean, we don't deserve a happy ending to our story. But God is rich in mercy and gives us a happy ending. And so when Paul says that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight, that begs the question, well, how then can we be declared righteous? Righteous in God's sight. And when we turn the page to the very next verse, to Romans 3.21, we'll do that right after Easter Sunday, Paul there begins to focus on the good news of what God has done in Christ to rescue us from the guilt and power of sin. And I can't wait to get into that passage, but one last thing. Here's what's so great about this passage. We don't have to wait three weeks to see the solution God has provided. Because as I told you, in setting up the problem, Paul will hint 
at the solution. And he does it in the Old Testament citations of verses 10 through 18. Now, I'm not going to reread them. Let me just explain what I mean here. Follow me in this last point today. In verses 10 through 12, Paul cites Psalm 14. Now, that draws attention to our failure to seek God. But if you were to read all of Psalm 14, it ends with a prayer. A prayer for God to deliver his people. It's like the Exodus language we were considering a moment ago. In verses 13 through 14, Paul cites three psalms. All of them ask God to act and deliver his people. So yes, our throats are open graves. Because of that sin, God deliver us. And lastly, verses 15 through 17, they cite Isaiah 59. And here's how one author describes that citation. Of all the chapters in the Hebrew Scriptures, Isaiah 59 most strikingly describes God as discovering there is no righteousness in the world. And so God puts on the clothes of righteousness and salvation, and he rescues the covenant people and judges their enemies. Go home today, read Isaiah 59. You'll see what I'm talking about. And that chapter ends where God comes to Zion as a redeemer. Paul will cite that in Romans 11. And establishes the covenant, gives the spirit to his people, saves them from their sin. You see where I'm going with this? In the midst of of human sin, God acts to save his people. And so what might look to us is just, hey, Paul needed some verses on sin, so he got out his concordance and he found the best ones he could find. No, he deliberately cited passages that on the surface condemn everyone for their sin. That is what they do. And yet the story that they assume is that in the midst of sin, in that situation... God chooses to act because he's righteous, because he's made promises. Where sin abounded, grace much more abounds. And so Jesus Christ is the one who breaks the power of sin and forgives you of your guilt. And you can only hide from God's wrath in him. Do you know the power of sin? then you can know the power of grace. Do you know what it's like to say yes to sin and no to God? Then through Jesus, you can know what it's like to say no to sin and yes to God, to live a transformed life of holiness, to pursue obedience, and to do it in the context of full forgiveness by being freed from sin's power. You can live as God's people in God's world. And that frees you up to find meaning and purpose in your everyday lives. You're going to go out, and for the next six days, you're going to do whatever it is, at whatever age God has called you to do. You can function there as God's image bearers. You can function there reflecting the grace of God. You can live rightly in his world, enjoying his world, making his world better. Why? Because you're freed from sins power. So find that refuge, find that safety in the person and work of Jesus Christ.
Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us of our many sins. Thank you for the work of Christ. And please change us more and more into his image. Bring forth much fruit from your word. Do it for every member of this assembly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.